Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, it is a privilege to speak here tonight. Um, and I appreciate that uh, Mike asked me. Um, I was born in Chicago um, in 1972. And uh, when I was born, um, the soft palate on my head caved in and I got pneumonia, and I stayed in the hospital for six months. So before I even got out of the hospital, I was causing my family grief. It was uh, like right from the gate, you know. Um, I'm sure they wondered, you know, what's going on with this guy. And, um, and then from there, we moved, moved around a lot, ended up in Connecticut, and then finally settled in Philadelphia. Um, my family is interesting in the fact that both my parents are from London and my father is an alcoholic that doesn't drink so he's dry um, he's, uh, he's a miserable guy and um, it's a shame because if he could have found the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous I think he could have been a hell of a person but he is um, Always angry, um, and uh, just just mean. And I grew up with that. That's what I uh, I grew up with. I grew up with a guy that nothing was ever good enough for. Um, you were always wrong, even when you were right. You know, you could get straight A's, and he'd find a fault in it. Um, you know, so I sort of grew up in this like post-traumatic stress disorder dysfunctional life uh, family life um, you know and the other side of the coin was my mother who was just you know she's just the sweetest thing you know um, but just not very bright you know she just didn't really you know she just kind of went through life with, uh, with blinders on um, I'm close with both of my brothers um, and they're both very intelligent and very um, successful people. One lives in Manhattan, and he's a uh, he's a CEO of a company there. And my other brother here is a a writer who has uh, been number one on the bestsellers list a couple of times. So, um, but I never fit that. You know, it never happened to me. <laughs> you know, it just didn't uh, it didn't materialize that way. And I don't know if you're an alcoholic like me. Um, you might have brothers and sisters or family that ended up like that. Um, so I got compared to them my whole life, which um, is unfair because um, we're very different. They are not alcoholic, you know. Um, at 14, um, under the stress of everything in my life, I found alcohol and marijuana and when I tell you it changed my life as soon as I touched it it did you know suddenly it was okay to be me and I don't mean that like I felt like I was suddenly I could deal with the crap going on at the house because I, I didn't care anymore suddenly I didn't care about school suddenly you know everything just suddenly became okay I was living in this world that was just like you know, it was, um, 
you know, just like sharp knives all the time stabbing you, you know. And then suddenly there was no pain anymore at all. And I can remember the day I realized, wow, this works. I'm going to run with this. I literally had a conscious thought that I was, <coughs> was going to run with it. I didn't realize, though, that I was alcoholic also. Like, I thought I could pick it up and put it down. You know, that was the kind of thoughts I had. But what I realized was instantly I was drinking every day. I was skipping school. I wasn't even going to school. You know, my grades plummeted. I mean, I had consequences from alcohol now that I know the truth about my life from day one, the way I drank. You know, from day one, things were happening to me. You know, I'm getting in trouble with the law. You know, I have a DUI at 19. You know, I wreck a car at 21. You know, I, the, the consequences showed up. But, you know, I didn't see them. And no one in my family had heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. And no one I knew was in Alcoholics Anonymous. So there were all these giant red stop signs and I just kept going through them, you know, because I had no knowledge of what I was or what was happening to me. Um, I went off to Penn State University, <clears throat> barely graduated, but did graduate, you know. Um, and there my drinking took on a, it took on a uh, force that I actually hadn't had before. On the way to school, I would hit the bars. On the way home, I would hit the bars. Sometimes I'd never even get to school, you know. And I thought that was okay, you know. I thought that was normal. Only now do I know that that's highly abnormal behavior, you know. Um, but I got out of school, you know. So there was, to me, there seemed like no wreckage. To me, there seemed like no problem. Moved to Boston. I worked for um, a uh, company out in Concord, which um, was in the financial services industry. And um, right out of college, you know, just started making a bunch of money. And what I now know is that money hid problems that I was having, you know. Money hid the unmanageability of my life. Um, so I started making a bunch of money, and um, I started accumulating things, started buying things. So on the outside, it appeared like life was working. But the reality was, on the inside, I was um, in fear all the time of everything. You know? And my life was unmanageable. Uh, in Boston, I caught a DUI, but the the cop happened to be drunker than I was, so he uh, he didn't know what to do. He did not know what to do, and um, so he just let me go. Um, a few weeks later, I mean, and if you've ever been in Boston, those guys they drink, they drank up there a lot, um, and uh, a few weeks later, you know, went up to Montreal. For New Year's, on the way back, you know, I guess there was some, like, leftover drug 
paranoia or something in my in one of the person's bags and we were all stuck at the border for like, you know, a day and a half. I mean, and I laughed at it because nothing ever came of it, but it was all unmanageability and I just didn't know it, you know. Um, moved to uh, Philadelphia, got a better job and uh, started making a lot of money. Uh, and I'm not really bragging because I, I don't have any of it left, you know. It's all gone. Um, and there though, there, though, I started doing things to keep me... I, I stopped functioning on just the alcohol. So I needed narcotics now to keep me going, to, keep me, to get me up to go to work, to keep me up with everyone else, you know. And... Um, I thought it would I thought it was fun while it was happening. I really did. Being sober today and looking back on it, um, you know, I don't like that person at all. A lot of what happened was uh, you know, there were there were uh there was domestic violence with like my girlfriend and other girlfriends. There was, you know, um just like, you know, you, you cheated with this person's girlfriend. I mean, it was just a mess, you know, and, it's, and it wasn't who I was. So there was this, like, internal thing going on at this firm I was at that everyone was, like, messing around with everyone else's girls and everyone was, like, stealing people's clients. And the clients you did have, you know, you were, you were to keep your habit going, you were, you were robbing them. I mean, on paper, you couldn't go to jail for it, but it was not it was not good activity, you know. You would force people into situations where they had to sign or whatnot, you know. And I think back on it now, you know, there's amends I can't make. There's no way I can possibly make amends for letting people sign away um, their commercial businesses to deals I knew would bankrupt them. Also, I would get my commission so I could keep my lifestyle going, you know, you know, them, they're, fit, they're on the street, you know, who knows what happened to them? They lost everything, you know, and this happened over and over and over and over <coughs> in, this, in this firm, um, you know, uh, so it just was, uh, it was a direct result, though, of the alcoholism, and I know that today because, I wouldn't have needed to play those games or did those things. I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing those things. But I'm under the influence and my judgment is skewed. So I'll do anything at that point. You know, I'll do anything. You know, a little, a little robbery, basically. It's white collar. Ah, no big deal. You know, but it is a big deal. See, I know that today now. You know, because my morals have come back to me. You know, my sense of right and wrong... You know, the compass is pointing north again. You know, it's, I'm going in the right direction now. And I know that today, but then, you know, I didn't know it. I also know now today I didn't have any tools for living, which is something until I came into the program I didn't, I didn't have because, you know what, I wasn't taught them. You know, the only tool I knew for living was anger. 
You know, if you were cornered or caught in a lie, you better get out in front of it quick so that they back off. That was the only tool I knew that I learned from my father, you know. Well, and, and being manipulative and, you know, deceptive. Um, so anyway, that company folded through all of its, like, uh, through all of its uh, bad deals and everything. Finally, someone else on Wall Street gave it a really, really bad deal. Bear Stearns, they were an investment bank. They're gone now. They died in the crash. But they, they played this game, and this is just a quick note. Basically, what we did was we, we sold commercial mortgages. We put them all together in like a billion-dollar portfolio, and then we would sell them to Wall Street. Well, one day, Wall Street said, we don't want them. And the guy was, well, what are we going to do with all this stuff? And it was all junk anyway, you know. So then they came back like a little while later once we sweated it out. And they said, well, we'll give you 10 cents on the dollar for it. And Tony, who was the owner of the company, had nothing. He had to take the deal. And it ended up bankrupting it. But what it did was, for about the next year, we were all on salary, but we, could, but we, weren't, we couldn't do any business. So you would go to work, and you would hang out for about three or four hours. And then you, you could leave because there's nothing to do. You couldn't sell. We didn't have any money to sell anymore. And Tony was thinking he could get another loan from one of the big banks, but he never got it. So for about a year, I would go there, and about noon, I would go over to the OTB, and I would start betting and drinking by noon down on Market Street in Philadelphia. And before I knew it, I'm drinking now round the clock. Round the clock. I am always drunk. I am always drinking. And what's amazing is, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. For like, for three years this goes on, and I don't think, never did I have a moment of clarity that there was something wrong, that, that this isn't normal behavior. And I now know that's because there was money in, in the bank. I can honestly tell you... <coughs> When that money ran out, suddenly I realized that there was a problem because I didn't have any more money to go get alcohol. And there was a big problem. Um, so I end up going in and out of rehabs about five. And I went in, I got out, I drank. I went in, I got out, I drank. Went in, I got out, I drank. I didn't know, because I didn't know really why I was going in there. I had no clue, you know. So the last time I got out, I was like, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to move all the way out to the, I'm move all the way out to the countryside, and I'm going to live in this little apartment, and I'm going to get my life back together. So I move all the way out to this place right above a bar, because I figured, you know, I don't have to drive, you know, I'll be safe. Like, this is my best thinking. This is my best thinking. And if, I think I living above this bar, I'll be safe and I'll be able to get my life back together. Well, two months later, I'm in the hospital because I tried to kill myself. And that was March 22nd of 2005. And uh, that'll be 10 years this coming March. And 
<laughs> Thank you. Um, what's great about that is that was the beginning of the journey, and that, that's what's fantastic. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous um, has, has been the greatest journey of my life. You know, it truly has. So I was in this hospital. I got sent to a psych ward, Brookline, in, uh, in Fort Washington. And I remember as I was like shuffling around the halls in there, you know, and this is the alcoholic thinking. I was like, you know, there, were, there was a couple of pretty girls in there. And I started thinking, you know, if I can just like get my life together with like a good girl, like maybe one of these, that like I'll be okay. So the, the one that was, was the kleptomaniac stealing everything from everyone's rooms yeah, I decided that I would approach this girl, and I, was, <laughs> and I would see if like, we could get together when I got out of rehab. And now that I look back at it, I'm like, wow, that is such insane thinking. That is insanity of the utmost, that some crazy girl and me, as crazy as I can possibly be at that point, just tried to kill myself three days ago. If we two, us two crazy people get together, we're going to make a life of it. You know, it's just amazing. It's amazing, you know. So I got sent off down to um, Florida, Palm Beach. Palm Beach, Florida, a place called the Beachcomber. And it was um, right on the beach. It was like these little bungalows right on the beach. It was, um, there were 16 people allowed in it, so it wasn't a very big place. And, you know, there was five meetings in therapy a day. And this went on for, um, for 28 days. And in the middle of the day, they would let you go to the beach. After you'd been there two weeks, they'd say, you can go to the beach. And if you don't come back, these rooms are really valuable. Someone else will be in your room before you know it. <laughs> and they weren't kidding. And what was, what was stranger is people didn't come back. Some people, some girls, some people, they just were like, no, I'm fine. I'm out of here. I'm going down the beach to where they, you know, they sell the drugs and everything. And I was so mixed up that I decided I was going <coughs> to stick it out. I was going to see where this went because I, I hadn't been sober since 14. And I'm now 33. You know, so I decided I'd stick it out. And on the 28th day... They came to me and they said, you know, you're, you're sicker than the other people. You need to stay longer. And I laughed because they were right, you know. They were right. You know, I had tried to kill myself and these other people were just regular drunks, I guess. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I got my first lesson of, of how dangerous the disease of alcohol is while I was there. Because I had never really even thought that it was dangerous. And there was a lady who, when I got there, I had nothing. I had the clothes on my back. That's how it worked out for me. And I didn't, I didn't, I had, um, anyway, so she gave me a pair of sandals. And she left five days later. And on the 28th day, she died. She, she'd been out. She went out and she got drunk and she fell down some <laughs> stairs and broke her neck. <coughs> I hadn't even got out and she was already dead. And they came and they told us. And I remember thinking, Wow, yeah, she she died of alcoholism. You know, that wasn't 
that wasn't cirrhosis of the liver when you're 70. But that was, you know, she got drunk as can be and fell down some stairs and died. I was like, wow, okay, so this is true. And certain things started making sense in there, you know. They made us read the big book, you know. And, and slowly I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, so on the 43rd day, I had had enough because I'm still in self-will and I'm tired of the place, so I just leave. You know, you know, 45 days and I think I know it all. I remember having the thought, I don't need to listen to these people anymore. They didn't, they're, this, they're going over the same chapter again. This, you got to be kidding me. How it works again? Oh, my God. You know, so I left and I did the only thing I knew how to do is I called one of the guys that was in there. And I figured, you know, old Darren McKay was sober. I get out, we're at his place, he's not sober. And I'm like, oh. And I knew I was in trouble right then. I said, oh shit, he's not sober. He's out here drinking and drugging. So somehow I managed to stay sober for the next five days until my flight back to Philadelphia, hanging out with a guy that was just doing drugs the whole time. And... um, Got back to Philadelphia, found a sponsor, started working the steps. He was a good man. Good man, Mr. Wagner. He, um, he taught me about this program, you know, and I remember the first thing he said to me was, he said, I want you to know anything you think is wrong, your brain doesn't work, you know, you have to call me when you have a good idea. And I would, and he would tell me that's a stupid idea. You'd be drunk in a week. That's not good. No, you don't want to move out. You don't want to move in with those two girls. You don't want to do this. No, you don't want to date that newcomer. And this is how it went for like 18 months until sanity returned, you know. And I worked the steps, you know. And um, then I built my own business in that time, you know. And um, all the material things just came flooding back, you know. And three years in, um, I was playing around in the stock market again. I was doing stuff, and I got burned. So one day I got burned bad. And uh, I had this brilliant thought. The brilliant thought was, I will, I'll go drink tonight. I'll go drink tonight because I deserve it and because this, um, it'll ease the pain of what's going on here. You know, this is my rationalization. It'll ease the pain. And then I'll come back in here tomorrow and it'll be okay. This program works. I know it works. I'll just come back tomorrow. So I go drinking. I didn't have one. You know, I drank all night, you know, did all the same stuff. I mean, it was like, you know, I'd never stop. You know, and um, I came back the next day. But then two weeks later, I was baffled. I was drunk again. And then seven days later, I was drunk drunk again. And then four days later, I was drunk again. And then it was every day. And I couldn't believe it. I remember talking to my sponsor, and he was like, you don't always get to come back. 
you know, you think you can just keep coming back. You think you can keep kind of playing with the flame. But you can't, because sometimes you can't come back. And um, that went on for about four years. And, and what happened was I um, got to a point where I really tried to come back. I really wanted to be back in here. And I would come to meetings and I would end up drinking after meetings. This went on forever, it seems, now that I think about it. And it, when, when I tell you that is the most miserable place to be, you know, I would have rather just been fully out there, you know. It was worse than anything. So that went on and on and on. And then I finally got back in the rooms. Finally got back in the rooms. And then I um, was here about 22 months. And then I broke my, my heel bone. I mean, I destroyed it. And um, they had me pumped up on so much, so much stuff. And I was out for like six months. That... Um, as soon as I got myself off the, all the narcotics they had me on, I just, I was, I hadn't been to a meeting, I didn't, nothing, I had no sobriety, I had no program working, I had nothing going on, that, you know, I immediately went to a bar again, you know, and um, then again, I'm just, I can't get back in here, because the disease is cunning, baffling, powerful, it, you don't always come back, and I know that because I have a good friend who, who told us that he was all going back out, he said to me point blank, he's like, I got another recovery in me. And he didn't. Drove home drunk one night and wrapped himself around a telephone pole. You know, he did not have that recovery. Back in him. So knowing that, you know, I just, I tried and I couldn't get back in here. So I kept praying to God, and this is, this is the beautiful thing about God. I think he truly hears us if we, if we really want something, you know, he knows. If in your heart, he really, he can tell, he can tell. So I'm praying, and I mean, I'm on, I'm on hard drugs now, and I'm drinking every night, and it's ugly. And uh, I'm asking God, you know, you got to stop this. I can't stop it. I need you to stop it. And uh, sure enough, I'm going to jail. Two nights later, after that prayer happened, the lights are on behind me, and I'm like, oh, I'm cooked, because there's tons of booze and drugs in this car. And that cop, he either knew or he could just tell, but he was like, you sit on that wall, and I'm going to search your whole car. And he came back, and he's like, it looks like you're going to be doing five years, kid. And I was like, me? You see me in jail for five years? And he was like, yeah, I do. And um, I sat in the, like just the worst place I'd ever been in in my life, and I was like, "Oh shit, I can't do, I can't do five years." So I'm planning in my mind how I'm gonna like, what do I gotta do? What I get bail? I gotta get to Mexico? Like this is my thinking again because um, I'm not going to jail. Um, so luckily, in the state of Arizona, they have this program where if you're a first-timer, they'll basically put you on this program for a year. And then they'll just wipe your slate clean if you get through it. 
And um, that was what I needed. You know, God stepped up. You know, God stepped up. Because I could not. The addiction owned me. You know, and that's how I know I'm the real alcoholic because it owned me. I had no choice in whether I drank or not anymore. You know, my mind would get going at like 11, and by 12:30 in a day, it just—it's just this raging tempest in my brain telling me to go drink. You know, I thank God every day today because that's not there. I am not that prisoner anymore. You know, I don't have the obsession of the mind, you know, ruling me, ruling everything I do, ruling every thought in my head. Um, But I can tell you, and I'll sort of circle the wagons with this, um, when I first came back, I was I was extremely afraid because I did not think. No, I know I'm the real alcoholic, so I think I'm not going to make this. You know, I'm not going to make it. You know, so you know, I I come back in and uh, I start working the steps. You know, I hear people say to me, "If you do the steps." If you work the steps, if you work the program, it works 100% of the time. And I'm like, well, it hasn't really worked for me. But then what I realize is I didn't really do the steps. You know, I did, I did the, like, Andrew program, which was I went through the steps once, and then I didn't bother with 10, 11, or 12. So I let my life catch up to me. You know, I let the world that I existed in, all the resentments, all the fears, all the dishonesty, I I cleaned it up, but then I let it come back. You know, I let all that garbage back into my life by not maintaining my spiritual program of action. See, and I know that today. I know that that's the truth. I know that I failed this program, that this program did not fail me. So I came back in. One's not hard to admit. I know that I'm powerless and my life's unmanageable. All you got to do is take a look, you know. Um, I got nowhere else to go, so I can believe that something can bring me back to sanity because I know I'm insane because no one else would do the things that I do. No one else would think the things that I think, you know. I'm definitely insane. And nothing else has worked for me before, so, you know, I'll... I'll believe that I can turn my will and my life over to the care of God. You know, so I get in the four and I start writing out all this stuff and I realize, you know, that within my inventory is the sort of the keys to how I view life. So how I see life and these patterns I run into all end up at defects at the end of four. You can see which defects they are. Are you dishonest? Are you this? Are you slothful? Are you, you know, jealous? You know, what are your defects? And these are the things that rule my life. So now that I know these things, you know, I have the ability in five, in step five, to talk with someone who I... You know, 
respect in the program, who I think has good uh, sobriety, who I think can help me, who can understand what I've just written down. You know, and that was the case. You know, that was the case. You know, and now that I'm armed with these are the things that are my problems, I can go and I can work on them in six and seven. And that's what I did. You know, and I'm working on them. And I work on them every day because every day I see the old me come out in one way or another. You know, just like a week ago, I found myself like messing around in the stock market again. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I can't go back there. I can't do this. This is the same old behavior. I don't want to be that person again. I want to change, you know. And, um, and then I, you know, have my list. I've made my amends. I went to, whew, I went to a lot, awful lot of people, you know. I went to, you know, my fiance's parents and said, you know, you know I'm sorry I, you know, blew up the wedding plans. So, you know, real horrible things, you know. I had to make amends for them, and, um, and I did, you know. And it's weird because that act was the most freeing of all of them. Something changed in me. And then, like, magic. Like, I had never read the book before I started reading, and it's like, when you're here halfway done, you know, you're going to feel a new friend. I'm like, oh, these are the promises. I've read them every time. Right there at nine. You know, but I'm not listening. I wasn't listening before. Yeah, I could tell you what was on page 24, but I wasn't doing what was on page 24. There's a big difference, you know, and I know that now, you know. So now where am I? I'm at 10, 11, and 12, and this was my Achilles heel. This is what happened last time. This is what happened the first time around when I had that willingness way back then, you know, when I was at that bottom where I tried to kill myself. So what am I going to do? Am I going to not work them again? Of course not. You know. Of course not. You know. It says right there. You know, it's not an easy thing to live on a spiritual basis. But I know now that I have to. Or I'll go back to what I was. And I don't want that anymore. You know. So my journey has been up and down. And I know some people say, yeah, I've come in and I've never had to have a drink again. That wasn't my story, you know. I wasn't, either I wasn't smart enough to get this program or I was too smart. And I don't know which one it was and I don't care really anymore. That's the reality. I don't care. Bottom line is I'm here now and I have a good understanding of the program. And it ends up, once you get to the maintenance steps, you got to work them. You got to work them every day. You know, and I didn't realize, you know, or I didn't read, or I didn't comprehend, or I didn't talk to my sponsor. I don't know what it was, but, you know, you have to maintain the spirituality. Otherwise, it falls away. It slowly rubs off. You slowly start retreating backwards towards this old person who you know you didn't like, you know. But if you're not taking care of everything, you will become that person again. Or excuse me, I will become that person again, you know. So, you know, this has been a fantastic journey for me. Um, I've done things, you know, um, in these last 10 years that 
I never thought I would have, you know. I've met people that I never thought I would have uh, associated with, um, let alone learn something from, you know. I've had people that have, you know, wisdom has come from the strangest places if I just listen, you know. know. And I'll end with this. The program has given me um, so much. Um, The second greatest thing that it has given me is the spiritual tools that you guys all laid at my feet and said, if you want these, you can have them. You know, and they are, you know, they range from, like, don't get too caught up in expectations because they'll build resentments and so on and so forth. Those are the tools that I use now, like pause when agitated. You know, these are the tools that I use now in everyday life. And, wow, it's crazy. My life goes just a little bit better every day when these things, you know. Restraint of pen and tongue. You know, that was one of my, you know, I would tell you what I thought. And that wasn't, um, that didn't go over so well sometimes, you know. And then I would be like, oh, but it was truthful. Yeah, but, you know, truth without love is, what do they call it? Truth without love is, uh, what is it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> truth without love is, um, basically, it's insensitive. You know, you have to, even if you're going to tell someone the truth, you have to bring it to them tactfully. In a in a in a way that is um, doesn't hurt them. The third greatest thing I have is the fellowship, um, because I was alone. I was totally alone in my addiction. I don't know about you, but I was absolutely alone. Even if I was with people and out, you know, I was just empty inside. You know. But the greatest thing that I have gotten in here has been uh, my connection and my relationship with my higher power because that fuels me every day. And it's something I never, I always believed, but I never used again. There was no connection, you know. I never went to God when I was having problems, you know. I used my man-made reality to try and sort them out, my intellect, and you know, sometimes, you know, most times you just got to let things go and just, you know, see how God's going to play them all out, you know. Or you got to pray and meditate. These are things I never did, you know. I never saw any use for them. Now I realize that without them, I can tell within 10 minutes. I can tell within 10 minutes during the day that I'm off. Oh, something's wrong. What did I not do? Oh, I didn't, I didn't pray and meditate this morning. Oh, that's why I feel this way. So, you know, um, I'm thankful that you guys asked me to speak here tonight. Um, and I hope that if you're, you know, new, that you heard something that um, will keep you coming back. And if you are been here a long time and you're like, yeah, this is just, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling it anymore, that you've also heard something. That will make you be like, you know what? This is the better deal in town. This is the softer, easier way. Um, because I know it is. Because it was, it was rocky out there for me. You know, it, was, it was a full-time job just to say hi and load it all the time. That's for sure. And um, I want to thank you all. Thanks for letting me share. Sure.